0: Mark chapter 10 in our Bibles this morning. Mark chapter 10, we have been examining different biblical texts that tell us very plainly why Jesus came. And we find yet another one here in Mark chapter 10. And all of these texts really have a a kind of drumbeat to them and a in a march and a cadence that they have a, a similar truth, but they're all slightly different in what they say. So Mark chapter 10 I want us to read, we'll start in verse number 32, verse 45 is really where we're going to hone in today, but I do want to give a bit of context and understand uh, this entire passage so that we know what's happening here. So Mark chapter 10, let's look in verse number 32. The Bible says, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them. They were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the 12 and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and they shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. And I find it amazing what the response to this is. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou wouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said to them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. And Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of and with the baptism that I'm baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. So Jesus called them unto them, and he said unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest. Shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. There's so there, there's so much packed into verse forty five, and I'm going to do my best to unfold it piece by piece this morning. But if I was to put it in a nutshell and kind of wrap up verse number forty five, I would say this Jesus came to serve the helpless. And the helpless is not just these disciples in the text, the helpless is you, and the helpless is me. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came to minister, to serve the helpless, those that needed a ransom. And this morning, I want to preach on exactly this text and this topic, Jesus came to serve the helpless. Uh, I want us to understand a little bit of the context here of Mark and what's happening inside of Mark uh, before we jump straight into the passage. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus has ministered in Galilee exclusively for the first eight chapters about Jesus and his serving and being in Galilee. And late in chapter 8, Jesus begins this march toward Jerusalem with his disciples. And it's shortly thereafter that we pick up in verse number or uh, chapter number 10. And right there at the end of chapter 8, Jesus gives really this new information to his disciples that we're going to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. And they begin this march there. And I want us to briefly, I'm going to move quickly through the, the first few verses here of Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 30 through 44. But I want us to understand the context. I want to outline this passage a little bit so that we can get a, a clear picture of exactly what Jesus is saying. And then after that outline is, is there, I want us to put verse number 45 under a magnifying glass and really hone in on why did Jesus come and what is he saying in verse number 45. So start with me in verse number 32. We're going to find in the first couple of verses here this repeated prediction, this prediction that he's already told the disciples is happening, but he's going to tell them again. And he's going to tell them in clearer terms even in verse number 32. And the Bible says, they're in their way. They're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is before them. They're amazed, and as they followed, they're afraid, and he took them again, and he uh, the twelve, and he began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall... Mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. This is something that Jesus has already told them. I want you to see this. I I mentioned a moment ago. Go to Mark eight. Just flip back a page and see the first time he mentioned it to them. And we're going to find out that it's just difficult for the disciples to really comprehend this and stop and chew on what Jesus is saying. Look in uh, chapter eight, verse number thirty-one. Jesus comes to them and he begins to teach them in verse 31 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter's response to him in verse number 32 is that he spake openly and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. And Peter began to say, Jesus, no, shh, don't don't tell us this, don't tell other people this, this, you shouldn't be talking about this, no one wants to hear this stuff, this is gloom and doom, it's pessimistic, stop. And Jesus says to him in verse number 33, when he had turned about and he looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. So he's already told them this, and this has been a moment for the disciples that they just really don't want to wrestle with. And now they're on their way to Jerusalem. This has changed. And he comes to uh, chapter 10 here, and he tells them again, but in clearer terms, that when I go to the Gentiles, I'm going to be scourged and mocked, and I'm going to be spit upon. And this is what's going to happen to me, and it's just tough for them to wrestle with. Jesus has to tell them this over and over again, and honestly, it never truly sinks in. They never really fully get it until it actually happens, and let's not be too awfully tough on them. We have the same propensity in our own lives. We have this tendency that with bad news or with things that are gloomy kind of on the future, on the horizon, that we want to ignore We have this tendency that when we get the notification that the collectors are calling or the lights are going to be turned off, what do most people do? Call them up right away and talk? No, most people put it on the pile and just kind of wait till another day, and they want to ignore it. We have a tendency to know that our sin has consequences and that it's going to catch up to us and that it's going to wreak havoc in our lives, but oftentimes we just want to ignore it. We just want to keep on sinning. I can do it one more time and then repent and then get right. And we, we have a tendency in our spiritual lives to ignore this. We have a tendency in, in our own health to ignore this. That we go to the doctor and he tells us you should do this or you shouldn't do this or you should start exercising, you should stop smoking. And what do we do? Generally speaking, we ignore him until we're in dire straits, until we really, really need the doctor's help. I had a, a friend significantly older than me, but his name was Tommy, and he passed away a few years ago of a brain tumor. But Tommy was a, a great friend, but Tommy smoked like a chimney. I don't know how many packs a day Tommy smoked, but he smoked a lot. But he had this tendency when he went to the doctor, especially a new doctor, he would go into the doctor and they'd be filling out some questionnaire, and they'd ask him, you know, uh, Mr. Tommy Davis, do, uh, do you smoke? Nope. Okay, Mr. Tommy Davis, have you ever smoked? Yep. Mr. Tommy, when did you quit? Uh, five minutes ago in the parking lot. Smoked my last one. <laughs> and Tommy would quit every single time he went to the doctor. And then, of course, he'd pick it right back up, and he would ignore He knew it was bad for his health. He knew it wasn't good, but he would ignore it. And we, we have a similar tendency, like the disciples, to get this bad news and to say, Gee, let's not talk about that, Jesus. Let's ignore this. Let's let's pretend like everything's okay. And that's, that's really what they're doing. He gives them this repeated prediction, but they just they don't want it to sink in. They don't really want to wrestle with it. But after that, I find it amazing that James and John are going to come to Jesus, and they're going to give him this petition. I would even call it a resented petition by those that are with him, and they're going to lay out this request. And you would think that the natural response to Jesus saying, I'm going to be scourged and crucified and buried and raised again would be shock and awe and wonder and Jesus, can you know, can I help you? What can we do? But it's not at all the petition of these men. We find in verse number thirty five, James and John, the sons of Zebedee coming to him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Jesus, give me a blank check. We just want you to do, I'm not going to tell you what we want, and those of us that are parents, we know our kids have come to us and tried to do this, and we're all wise enough to know you just don't give the blank check. You, you follow up as Jesus did in verse number uh, 36. He said to them, what would ye that I should do for you? Guys, what do you want? How can I help you? Why are you here? Then he said, and they say in verse 37, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. They reveal their selfish ambition, their motives, their pride. Jesus, in your glory, put us on your right hand and your left. Give us the seats of prominence. That's all it is in the the Jewish and in the New Testament custom, that on the right hand, on the left hand are the seats of prominence to the, the king's closest confidants. And they're saying, that's what we want to be. You put us there. Uh, help. We want those seats. We ignore other people. Can we have them? And I, I do give the guys credit to a degree that they do recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. They recognize that Jesus is going to rule and reign and they'll reign with them. So I give them credit there. But this is entirely motivated by selfish ambition, by wanting to get a leg up on people, to want to be competitive with the other disciples. And this is this request, we should understand two things about this request. One is that this is not new. The disciples are often bickering about who's the greatest. There is, there's this competitiveness inside of those 12 that they want to be the greatest. They've already had this discussion about who is the greatest, and Jesus rebuked them for it. And Jesus said, look, guys, he takes a little kid and says, you should be like this child. Stop stop debating amongst yourself who's the greatest and who's the best and who's going to get the title. Be like the child. They come to this, and Jesus is going to teach them servant leadership in a moment. But we find even, it still doesn't seek in, in, even in this passage. You're going to go to the Last Supper, and what's on the disciples' mind the night before Jesus goes to his crucifixion at the Last Supper is still who's the greatest. They're still arguing about it, and Jesus tries again to take, to, to serve them to take a towel and to wash their feet and to exhibit servant leadership. And this is just tough for them. It's often on their minds. They're entirely motivated by the wrong reasons. But this is an oft-discussed topic. But also understand that this is a little bit of a family nature here. This request is familial in nature. We find that James and John, if you look at the parallel account to this in Matthew 20, James and John's mother is with them when they make this request. She was too a disciple of Jesus and a follower of Jesus, and she is there alongside them. Yeah, give it to my sons, give them the right, give them the left, and she is there with them. And what we find about their mother is very clear at the crucifixion. Three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, present three women at the crucifixion. One is Mary, the mother of Jesus. One is Mary Magdalene. And then the third one, she's described differently in each account. In Matthew, she's described as the mother of the sons of Zebedee, so the mother of James and John. In Mark, she's described as Salome. So we learn her name, it's Salome. But in John, she's described as the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, So Salome is Jesus' aunt. James and John are his cousins. This is a family request that they're coming to cousin Jesus. Let us rule with you. Let us reign with you. Let us be on your right hand and on your left hand. Put us in front of the other ten. Give us the seats of prominence. And they're, they're selfishly motivated. And Jesus responds to them, and he says this in verse number 38. Ye know not what ye ask. Guys, you don't even know what you're asking. he follows up and says, Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now this is, uh, just to be succinct on this verse, this is a clear reference to Jesus' suffering and what's going to happen. The cup that he wanted to pass from him in the garden that was representation of the suffering he was going to endure. The baptism, not literally being dunked in water, but being immersed in the suffering that I'm going to endure. He's asking them this. And they they respond in regard to the suffering in verse number 39, we can. And they don't fully understand what they're saying, but they say we can. And Jesus doesn't disagree with them. And he gives them a prophecy. And he says in verse number 39, ye shall indeed... Drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. Jesus says you're going to. You say you can, and you don't fully understand the ramifications of this, but you are going to. We know history tells us, the Bible tells us that James was martyred for the Lord. History tells us that John uh some history tells us he was martyred some says he wasn't the earliest history tells us that they tried to kill john and they couldn't they put him in literally a large pot of oil and tried to boil him to death and he he was hurt by it but he just wouldn't die so they took him and put him on the isle of patmos which is where we get the book of revelation from that's what early church history tells us late church history disagrees and says that he was martyred now which one's correct I don't know. Frankly, I don't care because the prophecy is true nonetheless. John still went through the suffering that the Lord said that he would endure. And Jesus says, You're going to do this. But he says in verse number 40, But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand, it's not mine to give. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And the Bible says that when the ten heard this, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Now, their displeasure with James and John is not. James, John, come on guys, you know Jesus has told us to have a heart of humility here, you know that that we're not supposed to be jockeying for position and competitive. We're just supposed to be servants. We're supposed to love the Lord. That's not why they're displeased, okay? They're displeased because they got to Jesus first, because they had the audacity to request the seats. They want the seats. They want to be the greatest. They want to compete with them. They want the right hand and left hand, and they're they're mad that they went. They're mad that, according to Matthew 20, that Mama went along with them, and, and Auntie Salome was kind of petitioning Jesus with them and trying to get them in the good. Seats and they are they're upset about it. This petition is resented by the disciples. And Jesus is gonna stop and he's gonna take a moment to try to teach them a profound truth that is profound for us as well as we look at it. And he's going to what I would say reinvent a position. He's gonna talk about leadership and he's going to turn it on his head and completely reinvent what true leadership and authority really is. And he says in verse number 42, Jesus called them unto him, and I have to think that he's a little disappointed. I have to think that he's a little just upset that they're not getting it. So he calls them unto him and he says, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. So, guys, you know how this works. You know what worldly leadership looks like, you know what secular leadership looks like, you know what the Caesars do. You know what the Herods, there's all kinds of Herods in the New Testament era. You know what Herod the Great, you know what they do. You know how they lord it over people. You know how they rule with an iron fish. You know how they're all crazy, basically. And they were mostly all crazy. They, they would kill you at the drop of a hat just if, if you even became a remote threat. Many of, of the Herods and Caesars would kill their own children so that they wouldn't stand a chance to take the throne from them one day you constantly see this fear and trepidation and worry and exercising dominance over who they were lording over. We find in uh, Shakespeare's famous play Julius Caesar, and to be clear, I'm not a huge Shakespeare buff, but I think he does give us a, a good clip of what this was like, the, those that lorded over the Gentiles at this point in time. And he has this conversation between Cassius and Brutus where they are plotting to murder Julius Caesar and this is how they describe Julius Caesar. They say, he doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus. And we, petty men, walk under his huge legs and peep about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. They describe the, the leaders of those days as these colossus of men who, who really lord over and just rule and dominance over everyone and this, they were men to be feared, and they were feared in this day and age. And, and Jesus says, look, you know this. Now, it's sad to say, it's the truth, but it is sad to say that not much has changed in 2,000 years. We oftentimes are disappointed with our leaders who we expect to serve and to help and be in our corner, but they take the authority they've been given and they abuse it for selfish gain or for some sh- sort of greed. We are oftentimes displeased with our politicians who are there to serve us and elected by us, but they, they turn it around. and they don't serve, they do it for their own selfish ambition. We're, we're often discouraged by employers who don't treat us like people and don't treat us as valuable commodities, but they treat us just as a number or some little piece in the machine, some cog in the machine We're sometimes disappointed with parents who take their position of authority and and love, and they abuse it, and they use it in wrong and sinful purposes with their own children. We oftentimes, to be frank, are disappointed with our pastors. Pastors are no exception to this rule. There, There are churches and pastors who try to take their position, their authority, and lord it over their people, which the Bible tells them clearly not to do in so many different passages. But there are pastors who want to build their own little island with their own little people that they're the king of and they lord over. And and we see this in our own day and age. And Jesus says, look, you know the secular model of leadership. You know how the world works. You get this, but verse number 43 so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. He says, look, the heavenly model, the spiritual model, is the antithesis of the Gentile of the secular model, that it's not to be lorded over, it's not to throw your weight around, it's not to have positions in right hand and left hand, and, and I have a title, and I have authority, but it's serving. It's serving. It's ministering. It's helping. It's trying to come alongside of and pray for and help and care for and love on. And that's what real leadership is. And guys, I don't want you to be like the Gentile rulers. I want you to be, I want you to be a servant. I want you to think differently on this. And then he comes to verse number 45. For even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, Understand that this verse is a watershed moment in Mark. Up until this point, chapters 1 through 10 in Mark, Mark presents Jesus as the servant, someone who's going and he's getting in the day-to-day of people's lives and he's healing and he's working and he's just, he's serving. At this point in time, Mark is going to switch gears and chapters 11 through the end of his gospel, he's going to present Jesus as the sufferer as someone who suffers for the sins of many, as someone who is there to take away their sins. And this verse pieces those two together and is really a climactic verse in his gospel that he says, look, I want to put this together and understand what Jesus is saying here, first of all. Jesus is saying that this is why I am come, which that alone sets him apart from us. Like Jesus was involved in his coming. I don't think there's anyone in the room who really you were that involved in your coming. It's really not up to you, where you're born and who you're born to and what, uh, what slice of history you're born in. You didn't choose that. You, you have no bearing on that, but Jesus did. He says, this is not just I came here, but this is why I came, and we understand that that sets him apart as supernatural, but this verse is what I want to put under a magnifying glass, and I want us to see. Why did Jesus come? I think there's probably more than five, but I'm going to give you quickly, and I promise it will be quick, I'm going to give you five reasons based off of this verse, why Jesus came and what it means for us as we celebrate this Christmas season. First, I would say this, Jesus came to show us how to live. This entire passage is meant to be a lesson for the disciples, and it's meant to be a lesson for us. That this is not just some teaching that they had and they needed, but now we don't need it. It is meant to be to see servant leadership unfolding in the life of Christ and for it to be a lesson to us and for us to look and say, Wow, look at what he did. But not just look at what he did. How could we ever do that? We could never do that. No, it's look at what he did and look at what we're supposed to do. Look at the example he is for us. Look at how we are supposed to serve. And frankly, Church and Christians have done a really good job of importing business principles and American ideology into the church and into their leadership uh, philosophy and strategies. And I'm not against leadership books. If you want to go read John Maxwell or Stephen Covey or uh, Jim Collins or whoever your favorite guy is, I read some of them myself and I'm all for it. But be very careful that you do not import into your Christian walk something that's antithetical to the Bible and something that is not servant leadership. Because the Bible is very clear on that, that we're not supposed to operate as the world operates. We're supposed to have a, have a heart of service and humility and love. And Jesus tells them this very clearly. And this is not just for the disciples. This is for us. Paul clearly understood this. I want you to turn to one passage. Keep your finger in mark. But go to Philippians. Go to Philippians chapter 2. And this is a pretty well-known passage of Scripture. But Paul says, look, this is still for us. The model that Jesus gave us is still relevant and valid for us as New New Testament Christians today. Philippians 2, verse number 3 is where I want to pick it up and read through verse 8. He says in verse number 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. If there are two terms that would characterize what James and John are doing in Mark 10, It's strife and vainglory is what they're embarking upon. And Paul says, look, for us as New Testament Christians, let's not do that, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And why should we do this? We should let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That this example, we we best not miss this, that this example of Jesus, as Jesus came to show us how to live, Jesus came to exhibit servant leadership that we should do our best to live out day to day in our own lives. I read recently of Dawson Trotman, who's the late a founder of the Christian organization The Navigators, and he was visiting Taiwan, and there in Taiwan, he took a Taiwanese pastor kind of up in the mountains and in the bush to meet some other kind of village churches and pastors that they were going, and as they were going, it began to rain, and the trail became very muddy, and they were slipping and sliding, and he helped, I'll leave it at that, he helped to get all the way to the village, and they got there, and they had this, uh, this meeting. Uh, years later, one of the men who he had led, a Taiwanese pastor, asked him, you know, you were able to be around Dawson Trotman. What do you remember about him? I mean, a, kind of a, a hero of the faith in our modern uh, days. What do you remember about him? And here's what the Taiwanese pastor said. He cleaned my shoes. As we walked, as we went, he cleaned my shoes. Like, literally, he cleaned my shoes. That this guy served me. This guy helped me. This guy became lowly. And that is what Jesus is telling the disciples to do. Guys, clean each other's shoes. Serve each other. Care for each other. Don't be so self-absorbed. Care about other people. That is true leadership according to Jesus and according to the Bible. But he came not just to show us how to live, I would say secondly, and this is probably the one truth that I would love to drive home this morning, is that Jesus came to serve us. The Bible says very clearly, for the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, not to serve, no, not to have someone serve me, but to minister, to serve. That word there is diakoneo. It's actually the exact word that, is, that we use for deacon, that a deacon is literally supposed to be a, a servant. And he says, This is what I want you to do. The best connotation we could give it in a modern perspective is to be a waiter or a waitress. That you should go about trying to serve and wait on other people. By raise of hands, who has served, who has been a waiter or waitress at one point in time in your life? So, okay, a decent amount. I can raise my hand with you. I was a waiter at Cracker Barrel uh, many moons ago. I was horrible at it. I was not good at all. That's the one job I had that I just felt like I was an utter and complete failure. I just just wasn't good at it. I just wasn't. But a waiter or a waitress is what Jesus is trying to teach here. What does a waiter do? A waiter spends their life and their time trying to give people what they need. That's their job. That's what they're about. I just want to spend my life, spend my time giving people what they need. And Jesus says, look, that's why I've come. I've come to minister. I've come to give you what you need. I've come to help you. And is that, is that rooted in his death, his burial, and his resurrection and salvation that we experience and, and something that we looked to in the past? yes. But it's more than that. It's even yet future. The Bible is very clear in Luke 12, and this is almost audacious, and I struggle to even grapple with this, but the Bible is clear. Jesus says in Luke 12 at the second coming that Jesus will gird himself and he will serve us one day yet future. But it's not just past in his death and burial and resurrection. It's not just yet future, but it is present tense. Jesus longs to serve and meet your needs today. And in that salvation, probably most specifically, but even beyond that, the biggest needs and desires of your heart he longs to fulfill, and he longs to to help you with those. We struggle many times to find our fulfillment and our purpose and our meaning in life, and he can give that to you, and he wants to give that to you, and he wants you to find your purpose and your fulfillment in him. We struggle to identify, and, and we attach our identity to so many different things. We attach it to how we dress and how much money we make and, and our family of origin and our ethnicity and, and this, that, and the other, but Jesus longs to, for you to find your deep identity that you that we all sometimes struggle with for you to find it in him, not in your IQ, not in the color of your skin, not in how much money you make, but to find it in him. All of our deepest fears and desires, he's there for. We fear death. There are flowers right here from the funeral on Friday of of Claire Henley, and many of us, we fear death, but he longs to swallow that fear up with victory that he has given. He longs to help us overcome our sins, and he is He's not just there to minister unto those guys. He's not just there to minister in the future to us one day. But present tense, Jesus Christ longs to serve you and to minister to you and to meet your deepest needs. And I challenge you to find an area in your spiritual life, to find some sort of spiritual discipline where you do not desperately need Jesus Christ to help you. I challenge you to find an area in your Christian walk that you can do on your own that you can just will yourself, that you can get there in your own power. And, I, and if, if you've tried, and many of us have tried, you know that it's a losing battle. You know it's pointless. You know you're going to fail. And Jesus, Jesus is not a Savior who walks up to us and says, look, I want to release you from the chains of your sin. I want to, I want to take you to the captives and set you free. And I want to destroy the works of the devil. And I want to move you from the family of Satan, your father, into a child of God and marvel at that. And I'm going to do all that for you. And peace out. See you in heaven. Have fun on your own. That's not what he does. Jesus says, I want to set you free, and I want to help you, and I want to forgive you, and I want to move you into my family, and by the way, jump on my back. I'll give you a piggyback ride all the way into heaven that I will help you, and I will minister to you, and and honestly, piggyback ride has probably given myself and ourselves too much credit. We're probably more like on a gurney just laying there paralyzed, and he's just pushing us along. He wants to continue to help you. Jesus is not in the business of giving out get-out-of-hell-free cards and then saying, I'll see you in heaven one day. Jesus longs to minister now, to help you now, to serve you now, to wait on you now. Now, to be clear, we should not take this too far, and we can not take this too far. Jesus is not your genie. Right. Jesus is not someone where you just rub a little prayer together and say, give me whatever I want. You are not there to tell Jesus what to do and to command him. So let's be clear on that. But your deepest needs that you have, your struggles and your shortcomings and your fears, he wants to meet that need. He wants to minister to you, and you have to let him. You have to. You have to just like salvation, where you trust Him and you give up and say, "I cannot do this on my own. I need Your help, Jesus." In salvation, that is the Christian walk. That's the gospel day to day in your life. A deep understanding that today, as I wake up, I need Your help, Jesus. And tomorrow, when I wake up, my heart needs Your help. And the next day, when I wake up, I need You. That is what Jesus longs to do. It's. It's not just some past tense serve You or just serve You in salvation. But he longs, he came to serve us, to minister to us, and he's so badly. And that's, that's almost too much to fathom. Salvation is enough. Salvation is wonderful. It's amazing. If that's all there was, we would be eternally grateful. But it's more than that. He longs to continue to give you the grace and mercy and help and help you in your day-to-day walk. Thirdly, Jesus came to suffer. He says, look, I didn't come to be ministered unto. I came to minister and to give my life. And he's trying to punch this through the thick skulls of the disciples so often. But I'm going to suffer, guys. He just told them, look, we're going to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen. I'm literally physically, bodily going to suffer. I'm going to give my life. I get tickled at people who want to try to discredit the Gospels or they struggle to trust the Gospels and I've heard, you know, the Gospels, I just can't believe them. There's they're these guys, and I think they're just slanting them. They're just trying to put themselves in a good light. They're trying to promote their own agendas. They're, I just don't that I can trust what Mark or Matthew or John wrote. And I laugh at that because the, the, they're just extremely honest. They just report what happened. <laughs> they oftentimes portray themselves, as they do in this p- passage, as petty and slow-witted and extremely dense people. And Jesus tried to tell them over and over again, I'm I'm going to suffer and I'm going to do this bodily, and they they just struggle to get it. And Jesus saying, Look, the prophecies that David gave and that Isaiah gave and others gave, those were speaking of me, and they talked about my suffering, and I'm here to give my life, and I'm going to give it for you. Now, some bristle at that and they say, Why would God do that? Why why can't God He's God? Why can't He just wave a magic wand and say, You're forgiven? Why can't God, why does He have to die? Why does He have to suffer? Can't He just forgive us the end? Can't He just let it go? And the answer to that is no. The Bible is very clear that God has set up a payment system for sin, and the, the wages of sin, the payment of sin, is death. That sin has to be paid for with a death. There is no other way. We don't, we don't work our way, we don't pray our way, we don't do enough good works to get there. It, it can't be done. That it has to be a death. That's the only way sin can be paid for. And Jesus is going to die and he's going to give his life for that reason, for our sin. It's going to say, in Mark, to give his life a ransom for many. And, and many people try to pay their sins a different way, but Jesus has already made the payment for them with his death that they would just trust him. If I went to, oftentimes I go down to BP, the gas station right here at the bottom of the hill. It's so close by and they have... It's basically like a Walmart in there. I mean, you can get whatever you want. There's pizza, there's Subway, there's, if you haven't checked it out, I recommend it. The Waleskis, they run a tight ship down there. It's a good place. So I go down there all the time, and my favorite sub at Subway is a meatball sub, six-inch wheat bread meatball with three banana peppers, okay? So that's, that's the most important part, by the way, because if you say a few banana peppers, that's subjective. And one worker puts like ten on, and one worker puts two on. So I just learn, I tell them three. And if they put four on, I say, take that one off. I want three. So I go down there all the time, and they give you a little sheet, receipt, and you pay. But if I went to BP, and I tried to pay for my six-inch meatball sub on wheat bread with three banana peppers, provolone cheese, by the way, if I tried to, if I put it up there, and they said $5, and I gave them Monopoly money, what's going to happen? Denied. They're not taking Monopoly money as payment for subs down there. Why you say it's fake? Okay. What if I gave them some other money? What if I gave them pesos? What if I gave them yen? I mean, real currency, world currency. Can I give them that? Can I give them some gold? Can I give them some silver? They're not going to take it. They won't even take those like random Canadian coins that we all have in our change jars. You know what I'm talking about? We have like six of them down there. We're like, what do we do with these? Um, not going to go to Canada anytime soon, but we, just, we don't throw them away for whatever reason. We just sit them there and confuse them with our other co- coins when we go to the toll booth and frustrate ourselves. But I can't pay with my Canadian coins down there. They, they actually, like, they really want dollars, U.S. dollars. That's what they want. That's the payment for the sub at Subway. The payment first, and the Bible is very clear is death. That's why he came. He was born to die. He had to pay for sin that way. That was the system that God set up. That to pay for sin, it must be a death. And he says, I'm going to give my life. But not just give his life. Fourthly, we see this. He came to be our substitute. He says, I'm going to give my life, but I'm going to give my life a ransom for many. That word ransom literally in the Greek thought was to pay a ransom to get someone free from slavery or free from a prisoner of war or some sort of situation. He says, I'm going to ransom you. I'm going to die a substitutionary death. I'm going to die vicariously for you. I'm going to do it in your place. This is going to be for you a ransom for many and not just for many, just a a select few, but for for all. The Bible's very clear on that. Behold, the the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, that I'm going to ransom everyone. I read recently of a lady, and this is a true story, by the way, lady in Spain who arranged to have her own kidnapping. She arranged with a friend to kidnap herself and to send her husband a ransom note. And the police began to, once the husband got the ransom note, to investigate they found out this was a hoax, and they got the lady, and they asked her, why would you ransom yourself and kidnap yourself? And this, I quote, I wanted to find out what my husband would do for me. She ransomed herself and kidnapped herself as a hoax to try to see what her husband would do. Now, that's we laugh a little bit at that, but this in the Bible, in Mark 10, 45, this is no hoax. This is, this is no Theory. This is not just made up. Jesus didn't do it just for the fun of it. He did it because it was needed. You, I, we needed the ransom. Uh, we can pay for our sins. The Bible is clear on that. We can pay for our own sins. It's death and hell. That's why hell is called the second death. So we can pay for ourselves, but we do not have to. The only hope we have to not pay for those sins in hell is his ransom is his payment on our behalf, and he did it for us. And the Bible is so clear on this over and over and over again. Romans 5, that God commendeth his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. 1 Timothy 2, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified of in due time. That Jesus ransomed us. He did it as a substitute for us. And may we never get over that. May we understand that this is the meat of why Jesus came, to minister and serve the helpless and give his life a ransom for many. That word for there is worth noting, a ransom for many. Most of the time when you see the the preposition for in your Bible, it's the Greek word ace. Ace is used 1,700 some odd times. This is not the the case there in that verse. It's the word auntie. Auntie is used 22 times in the Bible, very infrequently. And it literally means instead of or in place of. That did Jesus die on our behalf? Yes, to some degree, but literally he died in our place instead of us so that we would not have to. Jesus ransomed us, the infinite son of God, dying for finite mankind. He says, this is why I came. Give my life a ransom for many. Lastly, I would say this. If we put it all and packaged it all in a nutshell, we'd say it this way. Jesus came to save When we talk about him ministering to us, when we talk about uh, him giving his life for us, him being a substitute, this is, it's salvation. He came to save. This is why we talk about salvation so often. This is the purpose of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. This, this is it. It is salvation. And he says, I have come to do this, and not just salvation from your sins in eternity perspective, but also in the present life to help you and to give you victory right now. I came to save you from your sins, to serve you, to be your substitute, to give my life, to suffer, yes. And you would wrap it all under that term salvation in the Bible, that Jesus came, his coming was to save us. And we, we've looked at this from different angles. We looked a couple of weeks ago at the religious crowd who just missed it, and they just didn't get the implications of the gospel. We've looked at First John, that he came to destroy the works of the devil. We see that he's here to serve the helpless and to ransom us. But all of it is packaged under this thought if he came to save us. I dare say that most in the room have probably experienced that salvation already. If you have not experienced that salvation, there were six, eight, ten, I'm not sure exactly, it was a little dark last night and tough to see, but there were half a dozen to ten people last night that said, "I, I need to be saved and I want him to do this for me. You may be in the room this morning, you've never been saved. I would invite you to do that, but for most of us Christians in the room who have been saved, we understand the implications of this text. The servant leadership is not just recommended, but it's required of us as Christians. We understand probably most profoundly that Jesus wants to minister to you. Jesus wants to help you. That day-to-day faithfulness, that Christian walk, just just being the Christian you know you you should be, that you struggle with sometimes, you will continue to struggle with it if it's you But he longs to serve and to help and to minister now, to give you salvation now in that sense, to to help you now. We understand that this passage of Scripture is here for us to look and just to marvel at Jesus and why he came and this Christmas celebrate what his life really was about. It was about us. It's about ministering to us. It's about ransoming us. It's about saving us from our sins. And we don't stand a chance without him. And this morning, no matter what it is, whether it's some humility and wanting to be a a better leader by serving, whether it's just trusting him in your day-to-day walk, whether it's you've never trusted him as a whole and you need to be saved, whatever it is, I invite you this morning to trust him. He will not let you down. He will not disappoint. He, He really is our only hope. And we should rely more on him, than honestly, probably, than we do right now. Father, I pray that you would use these next few moments of invitation in, in our hearts as we stop to ponder and consider what this really means for us and how we want to walk out of here different people. Lord, I pray that we would never grow weary of talking about why you came, about your death, about the ransom that you gave for us, Jesus. I thank you for it, and I pray that, we would, that we'd glory in it, that we would marvel in it. I pray that tonight when we come back, that we would sing and worship, and we would glory in it a little bit more. Lord, I pray that you would use these next few moments in our hearts. As the pianist plays with our heads bowed and eyes closed and just sitting there in our seats in a spirit of prayer, I do want to ask two or three questions. I'd like to start just by asking who in the room would say, as you talk, and we're talking about Jesus ministering to me and giving his life a ransom for me and saving me from my sins. I can relate because I've been there. I have trusted in him. I know that he has saved me and ransomed me and I thank him for it. Who just by simply raising your hand would say, that's me. I have been ransomed. I have been saved. And I praise Jesus for it. Hands all over the room as I knew there would be in a church on Sunday morning. Thank you for raising them. Who in the room would be willing, if it's you, to say, I don't know that that has ever happened. There were, as I mentioned, a a handful of people last night that were willing to raise their hand and say, "I, I don't know. I haven't been ransomed. I don't think I've been saved. I haven't trusted in Jesus for salvation of my sins. And I won't embarrass you or call you out or do anything to make you uncomfortable, but I would at least like to pray for you if you'd be willing to raise your hand. Is there anyone in the room who say, that's me. I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that I have been ransomed, but I would like to know. One, two. Are there a couple more? Maybe someone that I missed would say, hey, I don't know, but I would like to know. For those that just raise your hand, I'd like to do this. Honestly, I'd love to talk with you after church, but more importantly than that, I'd like to lead you in a prayer from your seat just to pray and ask and the Bible's very clear on salvation that it's simple it's so simple it is a heart of faith and trust in Jesus Christ where we say I trust you and I put my faith in you the end that's all that it is and I'd like to lead you in a prayer they're not magic words they're not special per se but pray them from your heart to God and pray something like this say Jesus I thank you for dying for me I thank you for suffering for me I thank you for paying for my sins. I ask you to save me. I ask you to help me walk the Christian life in the future. And I thank you for what you've done for me in your name. As Andy sings and the pianist plays, I'm going to ask you just to remain seated here this morning as we sing a couple verses. I want to encourage you to take the opportunity for the next 90 seconds and to talk back to god don't leave out of here at least if you're saying at least without saying a thank you at the very least say a thank you but maybe it's hey my leadership style is completely wrong maybe it's i just need to trust him more in my day-to-day walk and get his help maybe it's just a simple heart of praise to him but whatever it is as andy sings i encourage you to take the time and pray back to the lord here this morning Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, so good and he desires to help you. He desires to minister to you. He desires to meet your deepest needs. And we would just trust him. We can just depend on him. today with a heart of praise and we enter into tonight the musical with a heart of praise to say thank you we do we certainly do appreciate more than we can even really put into words what you have done for us past tense what you are doing for us right now and what you will continue to do for us lord i thank you that through you we can do all things so paul said i can do all things through christ which strengtheneth me I pray that we would depend on going through you, on getting our strength from you, Lord, that you would continue, even as we leave out of here, to minister to our hearts. We love you and praise you in your name. Amen. I will say that uh, tonight, if you can make it to the hill.